As we continue worshiping together, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 3, uh, which is where we'll be hanging out in uh, this morning, Luke chapter 3, continuing our journey through uh, the gospel of Luke. You know, there are several uh, families in our church that are expecting uh, newborn babies in the, in the near future. And uh, for some of them, uh, this isn't their first rodeo. They, they've done it before. And so their preparation process isn't quite as intensive as, say, a couple giving birth to what, or preparing to welcome their first child into the world. Because when you have your first child, you are preparing hardcore. You're, you're nailing everything to the floor. Uh, you're drilling everything to the wall so nothing can be tumbled over or pulled over. You're plugging every socket up with something to keep little fingers out of it. You are doing so much. But by the time you come to your second, third, fourth kid, you're not preparing, preparing quite as much. Uh, I know this because I'm the fourth child in my family. By the time I came around, I don't think anything was taken care of by the time I was here. My parents just, ah, he'll, he'll live, he'll survive. Uh, a first-time parent is often, you know, they're increasing their iCloud storage so they can get more photos and videos, just getting ready for that. Uh, by the time I came around, I think my parents ran out of film. Uh, I don't think they took many pictures, had many videos of me when I was little as we have those moments to reminisce together. I see my sisters a lot more than I see myself in those moments. But nevertheless, uh, when you're getting ready to welcome new life into a family, uh, you're, there, there are some preparations needed to be done. And I share that with you today because here in Luke chapter 3, there's a moment where John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, is preparing people for new life that is coming into the world. That he's preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. This is essentially what John's role is in the story of redemption. He would prepare the way. He would go before Jesus to get hearts ready to receive him. And as we consider the way that he goes about doing just that in today's passage, we want to consider in our own lives how our hearts are preparing to receive the life that Christ wants to birth within us. Are we preparing to receive Jesus' leadership and lordship, his, the redemption that he brings? There is preparation. There are things that we can do to ready ourselves for the arrival, the coming of Christ. And so picking up in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is what we read. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... While Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Itria and Trachonitis. Now, the key to reading the Bible publicly is to read quickly and confidently. That way, nobody knows if you're messing everything up. And Lysanias, uh, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, one of the reasons Luke uh, catalogs leadership of Rome, leadership in Judea, leadership even in the temple, one of the reasons why he's catalog cataloging all of this is to give a historical marker so that we can understand what point in time, what point in human history all these events transpired. Most likely this fell around 29 AD is when John the Baptist was engaging in this ministry and Jesus was about to start his. So there's a historical uh, marker is what John is trying to lay out for us. But even more than that, he's referring to all these governors, all these rulers, all these authorities and power players in the first century Jewish world who are located in Rome, who are located in Galilee, who are located in all these places, even in the temple, and yet the word of God is coming to John in the wilderness. And so not only does, does this provide us with a historical reference point for this story, this opening reminds us of who's governing history. Who's determining where history is heading? Well, it's not the Roman Empire. It's not the rulers of Judea and Galilee. It's not the high priests in the temple. Those who are determining history, the one determining history, who's governing all the affairs of this world, it is the Lord whose word comes to John in the wilderness. Ultimately, God's word is going to determine how things play out in this world. Ultimately, God's word is going to determine how our lives unfold as we journey through this life. And so the, John, the word of God comes to John. He would serve as a prophet, bringing God's word to the people to prepare them for the Messiah. Verse 3, 
It says that John went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low. Things are leveling out, things are evening, all the... The distortions of this world, all that is going to be made right. Then he goes on. Every, uh, the crooked will become straight. The rough ways smooth. And everyone will see the salvation of God. Everyone will see the salvation of God when the Lord comes. Now that's a beautiful message. But understand that the, prepar- the preparation that John is calling people to engage here and what he's about to say in a moment, this preparation centers around and revolves around a word that might be scary to some, and that word is repentance. Now, repentance was a word I was most afraid of as a Christian growing up exposed to the church and exposed to the gospel. Usually when someone talked about repentance, they got very red in the face. And sometimes they'd start shaking and their fist would clench as they would yell at people, repent. And and so I never really liked the word because I was afraid of it, wondering, well, I think I repented, but the way he's talking to me, I'm not sure if I did. Because I turned from that sin, but a few months later, that sin is popping up again and I'm being tempted in this direction, which is different, but it's sort of the same if I'm supposed to turn from all my sin and, and trust in something else. And so I never really liked the word repentance. But if you and I understand the role repentance is to play in the salvation of God's people, in the restoration of our relationship with God, and the reharmonizing our relationship with each other, repentance isn't something we have to be afraid of. Repentance is something we should want because repentance is tied to preparing ourselves for the life Christ wants to accentuate and explode in our lives so repentance is something we want to do it's something we want to practice it's how we prepare for the life that christ is birthing within us and so john the baptist would tie the preparing people for the coming of the messiah to this word repentance we keep reading he then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him brood of vipers now that's an opening to a sermon I I doubt very seriously many of you would have appreciated had the first words out of my mouth this morning would have been to call you a brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes and serpents. You probably would not have liked that very much. You probably wouldn't like me very much. But yet John starts his sermon that way. He refers to the crowds that are coming to him as a brood of vipers. And we're going to see why he does so here in a moment. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hands to clear his threshing floor. And gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. 
Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And he was praying. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with our Bibles open before us, would you open our hearts to receive nourishment from it? Would you open our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel in its pages? Would you give us grace to lean into the power of repentance and the life that it brings? God, we ask and we pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the key word to this passage, the theme, the, the central term and concept of this text is it revolves around the word repentance. And again, repentance is a word we don't have to be afraid of as Christians. It's a word that we can lean into, we can embrace, we can uh, practice repentance in a way that leads to life as it prepares our hearts for all that Christ is doing and wants to do within us. And so when we talk about repentance, one of the things we want to acknowledge right off, right off the bat is that repentance is required of everyone. This is another reason why John the Baptist would start this, or Luke would begin this passage by laying out all the powerful players in the first century Jewish world. This is why Luke would record the fact that John the Baptist spoke truth to power. He called Herod out for stealing his brother's wife. That's what that whole scene between Herod and Herodias is all about. Herod lusted after his brother's wife, so he conspired to claim her as his own. He did lots of wicked things. John the Baptist, being the prophet, equipped with the word of God, governed by the reality of God, refused to bow to that corrupted power. Instead, he spoke up and he spoke out, calling Herod to repent, and Herod did not like to be told he needed to repent. Being a power player on the world stage, he assumed that repentance was beneath him. And so what does he do? He responds to the prophet by taking John and putting him in prison. Later you learn that John was beheaded because he insisted that repentance was required of everyone. And when we say that repentance is required of everyone, we mean everyone, the powerful and the powerless. Those who are occupying positions of influence in the world and those who are assembling in crowds out in the wilderness. Repentance would be required of all of them. And the reason why repentance is required of everyone is because we all have the same basic fundamental problem. If you look at verse 9 in the text, John the Baptist would say there is an axe that is coming at the root. That it's about to fall upon the root. There's, There's a problem that's tied to the root system of our lives, which is why repentance is required of everyone. And this brings us back to how John started his sermon when he referred to everyone in the crowd as a brood of vipers. Why does he do that? Well, he's echoing the events that transpired in the Garden of Eden. This is the same language that Jesus would use of the Pharisees and the religious leaders later in the gospel. He would refer to them as a brood of vipers. He would call them serpents. And soon after, he would use the language of vipers and serpents. He would refer to them as children of the devil. John the Baptist here is telling the people, look, you all have the same basic fundamental problem. And your basic problem traces its origins all the way back to when that viper, the serpent, slithered into the Garden of Eden and whispered lies into the ears of Adam and Eve. If you remember that moment, the serpent slithered up to Eve and asked her, did God really say that you you cannot eat from every tree in the Garden of Eden? And and that question just subtly undermined Eve's trust in the goodness of God and what God intended for her and for Adam to enjoy in Eden. That question raised suspicion within them. So they thought to themselves, well, maybe the Lord doesn't have my best interests in mind. This is why he's told us we can't eat from this one tree because there's something about that tree that would change something within me and he doesn't want me to have it, but it's got to be. But what if he's just trying to keep me back from something good? And so Eve and Adam found themselves deceived so that they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they partook of the one of the fruit that the Lord told them not to. Why? Well, because the serpent raised suspicion in their hearts concerning the goodness of God and what he intends, what he intended for them in Eden. 
And this is the root system that we're all born into the world with, a root that says, you know, the, the, the root system of my heart doesn't readily trust that God is good. The root system of my heart doesn't readily trust that God intends what's best for me, even when his intentions for me come in the form of a command or a prohibition that says, hey, don't do that. That there's goodness to be seen in God's prohibitions. There is goodness to be seen in the limits God places on human existence to say, don't go there, don't do that. That all of those prohibitions, all of those commands are ultimately intended for our good, for our betterment. But the root system of our heart doesn't believe that. We don't readily trust that. And this is the basic problem we all share. We don't trust the Lord. This is why repentance is required. Because repentance is that moment when we get a new root. It's when we say, okay, my faith or my life has been lived in light of this root system that isn't trusting in the goodness of God. Repentance says I'm going to relocate my life so that I am now rerooted. I am planted in a new vine that showcases the goodness of God in my life. This is what repentance is. This is what repentance does. See, repentance isn't just focused on the things that we do. Repentance is focused on the reasons we do the things that we do. It's not just the what that's our problem. It's the why. And you and I can do good things and bad things for the same reasons. A person can do lots of good things because they do not trust in the goodness of God's intentions for them. You might see this in a person who gets very religious and they think repentance means they have to change what they're doing, start practicing forms of religion that can perhaps persuade God into loving them and accepting them and blessing them and favoring them. They're doing lots of good things, but they're doing all these good things for the wrong reason. We might call that self-righteousness. We might call that getting religious. But at the same time, a person might do lots of bad things for that same, because their life is tied to that same root system of not trusting God. They do all the things that God tells them not to do because they do not believe that God's prohibitions are designed to bless them and to keep them safe and to watch over them. And so whether you can do good things, you can do bad things, all for the same reason. This is why we don't focus in our repentance on what we're doing. We're focusing on why we're doing it. Paul would get after this in the book of Romans when he says everything that we do that doesn't flow from faith, that doesn't flow from trusting in the goodness of God, anything that doesn't flow from that root system is sin. And so this means that repentance is now required, not just for the powerful and the powerless. Repentance is required for those who are good and those who are bad. Those who might consider themselves religious and those who might consider themselves irreligious. Repentance is required of everyone because everyone has a root system that isn't right. And so what's needed then is what Jesus would say in John chapter 15 when he steps onto the scene and he says to everyone, look, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. Put your faith in me. Reroute your life in me. This is why the prophets of old, Isaiah, would refer to Jesus as the root of Jesse. The new foundation, the new life source for people. And so when we repent, we're not just changing the things that we're doing. We're changing the reasons we're doing anything. We're coming to a point where we're saying, I'm going to trust Jesus no matter what. Everything that I do, I'm doing because I believe Jesus wants what's best for me. So when I refrain from doing something bad, it's because of Jesus. When I do anything good, it's because of Jesus. This is what repentance is. It is changing the root system of our lives. But not only is repentance required here, and this is where repentance can get challenging, is that repentance is quite practical. The repentance we practice, the repentance we show, the, when, we, when our lives change because we're putting our faith in a new root, we're putting our faith in Jesus, which is changing why we're doing everything, that's going to pop up with noticeable changes. It's going to be evident in our lives. This is why there's an emphasis on fruit in this passage. 
that there is a fruit that corresponds, that, that is in keeping with our repentance. There is fruit that grows from this new root. Again, this is what John 15 is getting after. When Jesus says, I am, the, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and I in you, and what happens? You're going to bear much fruit. Now, what fruit is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit that blossoms in our lives as a result of our faith in Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control, that type of fruit every Christian should share in common. That type of noticeable change so that you are becoming a more loving, peaceful, joyful, patient person. That should be evident as you practice repentance, as you live by faith in Jesus, as you rely upon his presence in your life. So it's noticeable change that's very practical so that things begin to change and people can notice it. They can see it. It's evident. But not only do we see that repentance is practical because it results in noticeable changes, here's where we have to think hard. Because not only does it result in noticeable changes, repentance results in nuanced actions. Nuanced actions. And this is what I mean by this. As John is preaching to the crowd and he's requiring repentance of everyone, there are people who want to respond. And notice Three groups of people ask the same question. You have the crowds, you have the tax collectors, and you have the soldiers. And they all ask the same question. What should we do? Okay, we we want to repent. What do we do? And, And John does counsel them. He calls them to do things differently. But what he calls the tax collector to do is a little different from what he will call the soldier to do because their situation, their context is different. And so you see nuanced actions also flowing from those who would practice repentance. So the crowds who would say, look, one of the things that you're going to do as a people is you're going to start take care of those who can't take care of themselves. So if you have excess clothing, share some with those who have no clothing. If you have excess food, share food with those who are hungry. He's Basic fundamental love for your neighbor is to take care of people who cannot take care of yourself. But then when he turns to the tax collectors and the tax collectors ask, what shall we do? He tells them what to do. But what is stunning about his command to them is that he doesn't tell the tax collectors to change professions. It's surprising when you consider that every tax collector was part of a corrupt system. When you read through the Gospels, you see tax collectors and sinners often coupled together because tax collectors were viewed as synonymous with what it meant to be a sinner. And the reason for that is because tax collectors were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes from God's people. They were the oppressive force in the land and tax collectors were sort of traitors. They were usually Jewish people who went to work for Rome and they would tax their own people. And they had to collect a certain amount of taxes for their superiors. But the way they took care of themselves was by charging more taxes on top of what they were required so that they themselves could be taken care of. But none of them just did what was necessary. All of them did what was needed. And so excess and luxury became the rule of the day. And so tax collectors would often charge more than was necessary to take care of themselves. So they were part of a corrupt system. But notice what John says to them. He doesn't tell them to get a new job. He tells them to do their job differently. And one of the challenges of this, I get asked this question sometimes here in Seattle by those who are repentant and they're wanting to follow Jesus and they're wanting to be obedient and yet they discover things about the companies they work for that aren't right. They don't promote the ethics of the kingdom of God. That are profiting and preying off of those who are vulnerable in the world and they ask me, what should they do? Should they find a new job? And to be honest with you, when that question comes to me, I, I don't know what to tell them. Because I don't know if it's cynicism in me, but I doubt changing jobs is going to fix their ultimate problem. 
I think if they changed jobs, they might just move one or two degrees further from the epicenter of corruption or injustice that they're trying to get away from. But everything is so webbed together and so woven together in our world. We're so interdependent in so many industries and so many ways that you probably are contributing to injustice and oppression whether you realize it or not. Even in what you consume as a consumer, the phones you buy, the computers you use, where does all that stuff come from? How does it come to be? Chances are you cannot escape corrupt systems and expressions of injustice in the world. And so what do we do as followers of Jesus? How do we live our repentance in light of that? Well, I do find it interesting that John doesn't tell the tax collectors to change jobs because he probably knows that there's nowhere for them to go. But he does tell them to do their jobs differently. This is what being salt and light is all about. So as far as it is up to you, as far as it is up to you, whatever is in your power, your influence, do what you do in ways that promote human dignity, in ways that glorify the Lord, in ways that promote good for your neighbors. This is what he's telling the tax collectors to do. Don't quit your job and find something else because there's probably, not enough, there's probably not a place you can go, but you can be a different kind of tax collector. Can you imagine what it would be like if a repentant, lover, a repentant person who loves Jesus became the CEO of Amazon? Could you imagine what it would be like if a repentant person who loves Jesus started running and influencing the companies and corporations that are the most powerful and the most influential in the world. We don't want salt and light Christians to escape from those avenues of influence. We want to lean in, but to lean in differently in ways that can change things. It's an insurrection. It's transformation from the inside out. It may be our only option as followers of Jesus because we live in a world that is where you can't really escape corrupt systems, you can just remove yourself to varying degrees from the epicenter of so much that isn't right. And so what do we do with salt and light? We lean in to do whatever we're doing we want to do differently. Whatever we're primarily responsible for, we want to do for the glory of God and for the good of others. So there is nuanced actions that John is calling each one of these groups to. The soldiers are to respond in one way. The tax collectors are to respond in other ways, all of which are to flesh out this repentance that they're wanting to practice. Another way that you might think about this. When the rich young ruler came, when the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus told him to go and sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. When Zacchaeus came to Jesus, who was a tax collector, Jesus didn't tell him to do the same thing that he told the rich young ruler to do. Now, for reasons only known to Jesus as to why he would call the rich young ruler to practice repentance this way, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and the reason he doesn't make that same command of Zacchaeus are reasons only known to him. But Zacchaeus wasn't even told by Jesus to do anything. Instead, Zacchaeus offered up himself. He said, look, I'm going to go sell a third of everything that I have and give it to the poor. Repentance was being called for in both moments, but the actions, the way that repentance was going to be expressed was nuanced. Nuanced according to whatever Jesus saw in the heart of the rich young ruler, whatever he discerned in the heart of Zacchaeus. When it comes to repentance, we're not practicing repentance. We're not talking about something simplistic. We're talking about something serious, and we're talking about something where there is nuance in how repentance shows up in our lives. Another way that you might think of it. Let's say somebody comes to faith in Jesus and Jesus saves them from alcoholism. That they've abused alcohol for many years and alcohol is wrecking their body. It's wrecking their lives. It has dominated and influenced their life more than anything else in their lives. And so they come to Jesus. They turn from that. Jesus is saving them from alcohol. And now for that person, repentance is going to look like stay away from that. Do not consume wine, do not consume beer, do not consume liquor, because if you do, it's not going to go well for you. There's a fence that you need to build around your life that keeps that out, because that stuff steals from you, that stuff is seeking to kill you, that stuff is seeking to destroy you. So repentance for the alcoholic means I'm turning away from alcohol. Do we take that 
action and then apply that to every repentant person in the world? Do we try to build that fence around every life in the kingdom of God? I don't think we should for several reasons. I mean, even if you just look in the Gospels, John the Baptist was a man who refrained from alcohol. He never drank wine. He never partook in that substance. His cousin Jesus, however, did. It seems that Jesus did drink wine, and you're going to see this in the Gospel of Luke. So one guy did, another guy didn't. Was one right, one wrong? Like, what does repentance look like? Of course, Jesus wasn't repentant because he had nothing to repent of. So we must say that there is nuance to how we practice repentance. So when we build fences, we want to build fences around our own lives that keeps that which seeks to steal and to kill and destroy us away from us. But it doesn't necessarily mean we build that same fence with the same measurements and the same color of paint around every other life that we come in contact with. I think when we do that, we may be stepping outside the bounds of what Christ calls us to and the repentance that we are to exercise in our walk with Jesus. What that does is that turns us into religious people and not redeemed people. Religious people build fences around everyone. Redeemed people build fences around their own life that is good for them, that is in line, that corresponds with the fruit that keeps with the repentance in their own heart as they flesh out their relationship with Jesus and they discover the areas of weakness in their own life and they don't impose that area of weakness upon every other person in the kingdom. And so when we talk about repentance, we're talking about repentance being required of everyone. There's no doubt about that. Everyone must turn from trusting in in self, trusting in society, trusting in any substance, must turn from that and trust in the Savior. That's required of everyone. But the practical outworkings of repentance may look different depending on the persons involved. Now, what we all share in common is what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control. Where there is nuance is in particular actions, how we go about our days, what we engage in as we journey through this life. So if you're someone who struggles with pornography, repentance for you might be to get rid of your, your internet connection in your home. It might look like that drastic of a measure. I had a roommate in college who needed to do that. And when he reached a breaking point, he walked into the living room. He was from New Orleans, grew up on the street there, pretty rough dude, uh, had a rough upbringing. And and so he always had a knife (laughs) in his boot because he got mugged a lot growing up. And so even in college, he was still carrying this knife in his boot. He walks in the living room and he rips an ethernet cord out of the wall and he cuts it in half. He throws it on the floor and he says, I'm done. Now, he did that because that was a fence he needed to build in his life. He wanted to live out his repentance. He wanted to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, a fruit that looked like purity and holiness and and love for people and not preying on objects and and this, that, and the other. Now, I didn't do the same thing. I didn't rip my Ethernet cord and cut it in half and throw it on the floor. That wasn't a fence I necessarily needed to build, but it was one that he needed. And so as his roommate, what happened? Well, I conformed to what he needed. I We didn't have internet in our apartment for a while. I would go to the internet cafe. I would go to the library at school and I would rearrange my life. Not because I was necessarily, because repentance required that I got rid of the internet. It was because my neighbor, my roommate needed that. And we were in the same situation and context where that was how repentance fleshed out. That's how it fleshed out for him. All that to say is that repentance is practical It results in noticeable changes. If there's no fruit blossoming in your life, there is a question about what root root you're tapped into. And then if there's no nuanced actions in your life, if you're not fleshing out obedience in your walk with Jesus as you commune with him, as you talk to him, as you consider who you are before him and what he's calling you to do, what he wants you to do, then there might be a question of whether or not repentance is, is true of you. Are you a repentant person. Now, another reason why I struggled with repentance growing up is because I assumed that repentance represented a clear break 
a point in my spiritual experience where I just turned from all things sinful and I just started doing everything well. And if you've walked with Jesus, lived by faith for any number of days, you know that that's unrealistic. You know that that's impractical. You see, when you give your life to Jesus and you put your faith in him, it doesn't mean you are no longer going to be tempted and you're no longer going to struggle, but it does mean you know where to turn every time you are. And so you turn from that towards Jesus over and over and over again. See, repentance isn't a point in our spiritual experience. It's the posture of our spiritual existence. We're living our lives constantly tapping into the root that is Jesus. Putting our faith in Jesus over and over and over again. Living on that foundation so that that root system can produce new fruit in our lives. Now, When we talk about repentance, we're talking about something that is required. We're talking about something that is practical. But the good news of the gospel is that repentance is possible. That it is possible for you and I to assume that posture. It is possible for you and I to be repentant people. And the reason why it's possible is because Christ has come. This is what John the Baptist is getting after. There comes a moment where the crowd suspects, well, maybe this guy is the Messiah, but John was self-aware enough to know he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the anointed one. He wasn't anyone's savior. And so what his job was, was to point everyone to Jesus. So he constantly said, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. What does he say in verse 16? He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. And when he comes, he's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, this repentance that I'm calling you to, it it will be made possible because Christ is coming. And from our point of view, Christ has come. And he has lived the life that you and I could not live, one of perfect obedience. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He rose from the grave to defeat sin, Satan, and death, to conquer all that corrupts life in a fallen world. Jesus defeated in his resurrection. And after Jesus ascended on high, what did he do? Well, he poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people. And he says, look, the the repentance I require of you is is the repentance I will empower through you by my spirit. Now, there's a story later on in the Gospel of Luke called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in this story, Jesus is answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or how can I be a part of the kingdom of God? And, And Jesus says, well... You know what you're supposed to do. Love God, love people. And he says, okay, well, who are the people I'm supposed to love? And so Jesus then lays out this parable of the Good Samaritan that showcases a man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And these religious people just walked callously by. They did not turn to meet this man's need because their religion prohibited them from doing so. But then came a Good Samaritan walking along the road and he sees this one in need and he moves towards this hurting person and helps them up and uses his own resources to take care of this person so that his wounds could be healed and his life could be restored. And then at the end of the story, Jesus says, now go and do likewise. Now, you may hear that and, itch and be sort of unsettled by it. Because if you're like me, you read that story and you're like, I, I can't go and do that. I can try, but Chances are, I'm not going to love as well as this guy loves in this story. I'm going to mess something up along the way. Now, the immediate application of that story is love your neighbor, and everyone in need is your neighbor. So love people practically. Give to their needs. Help them out. But the big idea of the story is that this love that Jesus is illustrating in that parable is the same love that he has come to give sinners and sufferers like you and me. Ultimately, Jesus is the good Samaritan who came into the world, this unexpected outsider, this overlooked intruder that people did not, that people viewed with suspicion, and yet he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, using his own resources to right our lives. And so when we talk about repentance being possible, we're talking about Jesus loving us in the ways that he requires of us. This is what makes it possible. Jesus pours his Holy Spirit into our lives and when he does, we come to know his love in such a way that sets us free, that liberates us to love other people in practical, transformative ways so that we can practice repentance in ways that corresponds with with the kingdom of God. And so we 
Repentance is possible because Christ has come and he gives to us all that he requires of us. But here's another dynamic to this story. Not only is repentance possible because Christ has come, repentance is possible right now because Christ is still coming. And here's where I want you to look. I want you to look at verse uh, 17. Right after John talks about Jesus coming and Jesus would be more powerful than him because he would give us the Holy Spirit, he then says in verse 17, he then turns his attention to the second coming of Christ. And he starts describing the day of judgment, which is sobering. He says in verse 17, his winnowing, his winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his, thresh, his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. And so he there is referring to this coming day of judgment. And what I want us to consider is that repentance is possible because that day hasn't arrived yet. Repentance is possible because we're still breathing. There's still hope for every one of us. There is still hope for every person in our lives. Repentance is possible because this day being described in verse 17 hasn't come yet. Now, I don't know what that day does to you. Sometimes when preachers like me talk about judgment, it turns people off. They get angry. They get fearful. They don't know how to think about judgment. But I want you to consider whether or not judgment is a good thing or a bad thing. One of my favorite all-time TV shows was called Breaking Bad. Now, I think it's a phenomenally written show. It's one of the best written shows I've ever seen. Now, I don't recommend it for everyone. It is a rough show because Breaking Bad chronicles the downward spiral of a guy named Walter White. And it showcases that sin always reaps consequences. And those consequences are never good. And so the story shows Walter White, this chemistry teacher in high school, is diagnosed with cancer, so he takes up cooking meth and selling it to make money to provide for his family. And what started out as what he thought was a good intention, he soon became addicted to the power and the game that was cooking and dealing drugs. And he worked his way up to becoming one of the most prominent and powerful drug lords in the country and even in the globe by the time all was said and done. And so he's just breaking bad. Things are going from bad to worse in his life with every step he takes and every decision he makes. There are clear consequences for the decisions he was making. And those consequences weren't good. They even affected his young apprentice, a guy named Jesse Pinkman. And one of the things that Vince uh, Gilligan, the guy who wrote that series, he said about it, one of the things that drove him was this thought. He said, if there's a larger lesson to breaking bad, it's that actions have consequences. And I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something that, that surely judgment is needed because our world is breaking bad is the whole idea. Well, you see this illustrated in a guy named Jesse Pinkman's story who he committed a murder. And he was broken over this murder that he committed. So he goes to this Narcotics Anonymous group trying to find relief, trying to find somebody to share with him something good. He wanted to hear good news in this moment. So he goes to this, he steps into this room. And this is what happens. He shared kind of a thinly veiled version of what he had done. And then the leader of that group, the counselor in that moment, looked at him and he said, we're not here to sit in judgment. We're not here to judge the things that you have done and the things that you were broken over in this moment. And listen how Jesse responds. He says, why not? Why aren't you here to sit in judgment? He said, if if you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? So no matter what I do, hooray for me because I'm a great guy, it's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, I just, what, do an inventory and accept it? Do you hear what he's wanting? He's wanting judgment because he knows what he's done isn't right and it would be a terrible consequence for his life to go unjudged. There's a sense in which he sees hope on the other side of being judged and this is one of the themes of the whole series. And so Gilligan would later write this. He he says it's, that it's really not surprising that Vince Gilligan would believe in hell and he would believe in judgment, even though he's not a Christian. He doesn't think in these in Christian categories, but, but he does believe in human sin. 
And he does believe that sin reaps consequences that are bad. So he said, I want to believe that there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. You want to go back to the systems of injustice and oppression that are so woven together in the world that is? Do you want to look at the state of the world today and really say you don't want judgment? Or that you hope judgment doesn't fall? Judgment is a good thing because judgment is going to purge the world of everything that is wrong with it. All sin, all sickness, all suffering, all demonic influence, it is going to be wiped away because one day Christ is coming again and he will judge the world. This is what John is getting after. Christ has come and he's coming again. Therefore, repent. Assume the posture of repentance now. Don't wait. Do it now is what he is saying. Which is why the tone of the text shifts in verse 19. But when John, I'm sorry, verse 18, is it right after he talks about this coming day of judgment? Listen to what happens. It says, then along with many other exhortations, John proclaimed good news to the people. Why is that good news? There's something good about divine judgment. There's something good of knowing that the world isn't going to get away with its wickedness. There's something good to know that there's coming a Savior who's going to purge the world of everything that makes the world unbearable today. And so the good news of the gospel is that repentance is possible for every person. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you. He's patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And so we repent because repentance is possible. We repent because repentance is desirable. God wants us to repent. He wants us to turn from trusting in any other source but himself. He wants us to believe that he intends what's best for us in every moment of every day, with every command, with every counsel. He intends good for us. And so what do we do? We practice repentance. We put our faith in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. Now, what Christ does for us is illustrated again in verse 21 because you get to this moment where Jesus is baptized. And one of the reasons why Christians are baptized If you haven't been baptized yet, one of the reasons you should be baptized is because baptism is an initial way for you to express your repentance. It's an initial way for you to identify with Jesus. Now, when you look at verse 21, it says that Jesus was baptized. Now, Jesus wasn't baptized because he was expressing his repentance. Jesus was baptized to express our redemption. Meaning that when he was baptized, he was identifying with sinners and sufferers like you and me. This is what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 is getting after. For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Jesus was baptized to identify with the weakness of the human condition. And he calls you and I to be baptized because when we are baptized, what's happening? Well, we're identifying with him. He identifies with us. And when we are baptized, we are identifying with him. We're saying we're getting a new root system for our lives. We're putting our faith in the vine. We're putting our faith in the root of Jesse. And when you identify with Jesus in that way, suddenly his life becomes your life, his death becomes your death, his resurrection becomes your resurrection, his Holy Spirit becomes your Holy Spirit. So that repentance can be practiced and lived out all the days of your life so that you might assume that posture and find it to be possible for you to grow in grace and to grow in the ways that Jesus' kingdom calls you to grow. And so Jesus is baptized not because he was in need of repentance. He was baptized because you and I are in need of redemption. And so we put our faith in Jesus. We turn from trusting in any other source but the Savior all the days of our life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider 
the reality of repentance and why and how it is required of everyone. Would you give us grace to consider the practical nature of repentance so that noticeable changes would arise in our lives as a result of our faith in Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you give us grace to commune with you so that we might discover more and more the nuanced actions, the nuanced obedience that you are calling us to on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis so that we might live for your glory? God, would you give us grace to see the power of repentance as we rely upon your presence and as we lean into the vine. God, I pray that if there's any unrepentant person in this room right now, if there's anyone living by faith in anything other than Jesus, I pray that you would convict them. I pray that you would correct them. I pray that you would call them to practice repentance even now, that they might put their faith in Jesus and discover the gospel to be good news for them because, Jesus, you are delivering us from something that's coming, something that we need to be delivered from. And so, God, we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the ways that we, pra- we assume this posture of repentance on a regular basis is by, ta- by partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now, what I want you to think about as you take of the bread from the cup and the elements that you receive, if you're someone who's repenting and who's believing in the gospel, you would take the bread and you would think about the body of Jesus that was given for you. Now, when we say that judgment is a good thing, And we say that we're going to one day escape judgment because of Jesus. Understand that we're not escaping judgment because judgment isn't coming. We're escaping judgment because judgment has already fallen on Jesus. This is why he died on the cross. This is why judgment is a good thing. Because if we say judgment isn't needed, then the cross isn't needed. If we say judgment isn't a good thing, then we're saying justice isn't a good thing. And so we partake of the bread today thinking about the body that Jesus gave for us, the judgment that he endured so that we can escape it and be saved. And as we think about the body that Jesus gave for us, we also turn our attention to the blood that he shed for us by partaking of the fruit of the vine. And we're reminded of how he shed his blood so that our sins may be forgiven. That is all of our sins.